The stuff of history is all around us. It's in what we eat and wear, where we live and play, and how we work and travel. The Object Project is a podcast about material culture and history, produced by history students of the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and myself, Dr. Jennifer Lazat, Assistant Professor of U.S. History and Material Culture. All episodes are researched and recorded by UNCW students exploring the tangible past. On November 10th, 1898, a statewide white supremacist campaign culminated in the violent overthrow of democratically elected local leaders in the port city of Wilmington, North Carolina. Estimates of the black citizens killed that day range from the dozens to the hundreds, and many more prominent black residents and their white allies were systematically exiled in the days following. In the 1890s, Wilmington was home to a majority black population, and a biracial coalition called the Fusionists took control of local politics at the same time most Southern states reverted back to democratic control by way of unfair voting regulations and threats of violence. Wilmington was an outlier, but in 1898, after months of anti-black media campaigns, systematic ballot stuffing, and finally, an orchestrated murderous coup, white insurrectionists regained political control for the Democratic Party and changed Wilmington's racial composition forever. Wilmington's 1897 directory lists 125 Black-owned businesses. Just two years after the deaths and forced exile of dozens of prominent Black citizens, that number had fallen by 50%. In the century that followed, white Americans learned little about what many call the only successful coup in the nation's history. Portrayed as a race riot, the historical discourse about 1898 perpetuated the Democratic Party's lie about, about black violence and dishonest political control. This podcast series examines the material objects central to the history of 1898 and Wilmington itself in order to deepen understandings of the days leading up to the event, the violence itself, and the still relevant ramifications of November 1898. For this season of The Object Project, University of North Carolina Wilmington undergraduate and master's students will use physical objects as primary sources. We will tell the story of the 1898 Wilmington coup and massacre through a secondhand printing press, the Cape Fear River, a young woman's photographic portrait, a Colt repeating rifle, the Pine Forest Cemetery, a simple red shirt, and more. Please join us. Warning, these episodes contain descriptions and sounds relevant to the violence of our subject. Gunshots play a prominent role in the audio of several episodes. As we get started diving into this object, I think it's important to reiterate the earlier warning from the series 
that this episode will contain potentially distressing sounds of gunfire. If these sounds would be especially disruptive or triggering to you, please skip ahead using the guides in the transcript at my queue. But they tried to slay us all. Today we are mourners in a strange land with no protection near. And are we to die like rats in a trap? Oh, to see how we are slaughtered when our husbands go to work. We do not look for their return. These are the words written by a woman desperately pleading to President William McKinley for help to save her and her fellow black Wilmingtonians from the violence of white supremacy. This air of fear that permeated the black community, she notes, came in large part from the immense collection of weapons owned by the white supremacist movement that dominated Wilmington. She specifically recalls the possession of two Colt rapid-fire guns and a Hotchkiss gun by the Wilmington Light Infantry. It is these deadly weapons that this episode will focus on, specifically one of the Colt Browning rapid-fire guns that was used during the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. What was this weapon? How did these men get their hands on it? And how did the air of intimidation it created terrorize Wilmington's black community? My name is Maddie, a grad student at UNCW, and these are the questions I will set out to answer today in this episode of The Object Project, the Colt Browning M1895. In our examination of this object, I think it's important to first give a good, in-depth physical description of it. The Colt Browning M1895, or the Potato Digger, is 41 inches long, with a barrel length of 28 inches. And weighing in at 35.3 pounds, this is a hefty gun plus the tripod mount and seat, which add an additional 56 pounds, you're at around 91 pounds of machinery. Which, 
from the pictures we have of the Wilmington Light Infantry's rapid fire gun squad, they definitely had the tripod mount set up on their cart too. I mean, it was kind of essential to fire this thing with it being so heavy and with some of its other needs for a setup that we'll discuss later. I mean, look at the weight of the other guns they were using at the time. The Winchester rifles they're using are around 6 pounds, some of the other rifles weighing in at around 8 to 10, and the Navy pistols are right around 3 pounds. So, this is a large step up in size, and of course with that, intimidation factor. I mean, imagine the local mob, already armed to the teeth, looks around and goes, let's get an even bigger, faster gun that we're going to need to put on a horse-drawn cart. And that's the reality of Wilmington, 1898. This gun, while owned by the Light Infantry, was, perching, was purchased using funds raised from Wilmington's business community. Essentially, a fundraiser. They asked people, hey, do you want to donate money so we can buy this gun? And a lot of businessmen said, sure, why not? Which is in part why it was so heavily discussed, because this was no small purchase. At the time that the Wilmington Light Infantry purchased the M1895, it sold for around $1,200, which, if you translated that in today's money, would be $39,988.77, which is quite quite the hefty price tag, especially for just one single gun. This really drives home how committed to creating this unimaginably armed force these men were, especially when you consider the large number of other weapons they already owned. But to understand what made this such an enticing investment for the light infantry, we have to look at what made the M1895, or Potato Digger, so special, which is that it was gas-operated, belt-fed, and air-cooled. Essentially, this thing could shoot a lot of rounds very fast with minimal stopping. To give you a breakdown of how it worked, when you squeezed the trigger, this long piston on the underside of the barrel would swing down and this motion would help trigger the feed of a new round from the left side of the gun and allow the spent shell to be ejected out the right side. In an image of this gun with the Wilmington Light Infantry, we can actually see the cloth feed belts coming out of the side of the gun and how many rounds are attached to it. We can also see how much clearance the tripod provides to the front of the gun, and the reason for this is also how this gun got the nickname Potato Digger. Essentially, when that long piston I mentioned earlier swung down, if you were too close to the ground, it would dig into the dirt. So this thing needed to be up, or it was going to dig into the front of their cart, which obviously wouldn't be ideal but it also means this thing had to be on a cart if it was going to be mobile because it needed that sturdy base. 
The air-cooled nature of this gun is also important, as it allowed for the firing of hundreds of rounds without overheating. And compared to the other methods of cooling guns at the time, which were primarily water-based, this method was far more effective and portable. But to really dive into the danger of this gun, let's take a look at its firing statistics. The 23 caliber M1895 is capable of firing between 400 and 450 rounds per minute, with reports from within Wilmington 1898 showing that the owners of this weapon advertised it as capable of 420 rounds a minute. Also, this gun could fire around 1,000 rounds continuously before overheating, so a little over two minutes of continuous firing if needed. So, just to give you an idea of what that sounds like, how many physical shots that is, let's listen to a clip of one of these guns in action. And just a reminder to those of you looking to avoid these clips, please skip ahead now. sound is disturbing to those of us at home, imagining how destructive this could be if unleashed on a community of mostly unarmed civilians, Wilmington's Black community got a first row seat. After the purchase of the M1895 by the Light Infantry, the Rapid Fire Gun Squad gathered up influential Black community leaders and led a demonstration of the gun's power on November 1st, 1898. This took place around five miles from Wilmington near Eagles Island and was by no means optional. And if that's not terrifying enough, they were also on a boat. So imagine, You've been rounded up and shown that these white supremacists now have an extremely deadly weapon capable of decimating your community, and you're stranded on a boat with the men in charge of it. Not exactly ideal. This really terrified the black citizens. Even before these weapons were actually turned on them on November 10th, the fear that if they stepped out of line, that this is what waited for them was overwhelming. And keep in mind, this is on top of the all-time high number of gun sales that were already occurring in Wilmington, at least among white men. Because while many of these vendors refused to sell to black men, they were reporting four to five times their normal sales. And the guns they're selling are a mix of Colt and Winchester repeating rifles, shotguns, and pistols. So really, any type of guns these men can get their hands on, they wanted. But due to the racial discrimination in the sale of these weapons, what we see happen is that the white supremacists become armed to the teeth with these new weapons. 
while the black community, in much smaller quantities, owns old military guns, mostly muskets, shotguns, and pistols, which just the age of these weapons puts them at a huge disadvantage. These fired much slower than newer repeating guns, and they also struggled to obtain ammunition for them due to the aforementioned racial discrimination in selling practices. So, even those few who did own guns often had very little, if any, means to actually fire them. But just to give you an idea of what these guns sounded like in practice, let's listen to a clip of one of the Colt repeating rifles that the white supremacists would have owned at the time. And now let's listen to what one of the older military rifles that black citizens could have owned sounds like. And listen closely to the reload process of this gun. Hear how long it was and how much moving and shuffling around it took. This means that if you were on the run trying to get away from the mobs of armed white men firing at you, Trying to load this gun while doing so would be incredibly difficult. So there's a very obvious difference in firing speeds between these two guns. And you can also hear that compared to the first clip, there's a lot more going on in order to get this older rifle to fire again. But to get back to the M1895 and dive further into the intimidation tool that it acted as within Wilmington's black community. Let's jump in to some first person records of it, especially during the massacre. It was a great sight to see them marching from death, 
and the colored women, colored men, colored children, colored enterprises, and colored people all exposed to death. Firing began and it seemed like a mighty battle in wartime. The shrieks and screams of children, of mothers, of wives were heard, such as caused the blood of the most inhuman person to creep. words from Reverend J. Allen Kirk from just days after the massacre cut straight to the core of the action. In his report detailing the events of the massacre, Kirk frequently mentions the shrieks and cries that could be heard throughout the streets and how the sights of the armed men and the many victims struck fear into the hearts of black citizens. He goes into greater detail of these shootings, explaining that the white aggressors would continue firing upon their black victims, even once it was clear that they were already dead. He further recalls this overkill of violence by saying that in some cases, between 60 to 100 shots were fired upon a single man. This shows that these deaths weren't just meant to eliminate their targets, but to terrify anyone around unlucky enough to witness them. Another important insight Kirk's report gives us is of the presence of the M1895. Kirk writes that wives and children were shrieking in fear at the sight of cannons in Gatling gun, as the army of white men moved through the streets. But were these weapons he mentions actually there? The short answer is probably not. The cannons that these people saw were most likely Hotchkiss guns, which if you've never seen a picture of one of these weapons, it's pretty similar looking to a Gatling gun. These guns were actually named the Hotchkiss Revolving Cannon, and while different than what we would probably picture when thinking of a cannon today, it does have those signature large wheels on either side of it to allow its movement. So, kind of picture this as a modern machine gun meets cannon combination monster weapon. I think it's important to note that all mentions of a Gatling gun from the Wilmington Massacre were inaccurate. There was no Gatling gun there, at least as far as we can tell. This misidentification was caused by the popularity of the Gatling gun and mentions of it in relation to the events of 1898 are always a case of mistaken identity of either the Colt Browning M1895 or the Hotchkiss gun. You have to remember that while the Gatling gun had been around since 1861, the M1895 and Hotchkiss guns were far newer. The Gatling gun was something that many of these men from both races were familiar with, especially with its history of usage in military battles 
which explains why they so frequently reached for this name in trying to describe these newer machine guns. Since the M1895 was the newest of these three guns, with the Hotchkiss gun coming out in 1875, it was by far the most misidentified, purely because most people had never seen it before. It's also important to note that almost every mention of a Colt Rapid Gun or Colt Rapid Fire is referring to this Colt Browning M1895. And the reason for this is because Colt was a much more well-known name than Browning. John Moses Browning partnered with Colt for the production of numerous guns, including this one, which he first applied for patent for in 1892. Browning is listed as the sole inventor on all four pages of the original patent, which was not in approved until 1895. This patent specifically lists this weapon as a gas-operated machine gun, which was a big innovation from the previously popular crank-operated machine guns. A good example of one of these would be a Gatling gun. A Gatling gun had a hand crank that you had to rotate in order to feed the bullets into the machine and fire them out. However, with the M1895, there was no hand crank. The machine could do it itself. I think this is when we really start to see a shift between what we think of as old machine guns into something more recognizable today. But how did this gun end up as the Colt Browning M1895 instead of just remaining as Browning's invention? Well, there was a large series of agreements between Browning and Colt in which they were granted partial ownership of these patents. But unfortunately for Browning, with Colt being such a well-known name and gun manufacturer, his name is often forgotten when we talk about these weapons today. Another important note about the M1895 is the year 1895. This was an incredibly new gun to the point that we believe there had only been six made by the time that the massacre occurred in 1898. We also know that two of these guns never left the factory. They broke during production. So we think that the two that were in Wilmington were part of this original six and may have been purchased from the American military in order to reach their destination in Wilmington. Another account of the fear caused by the M1895 
as well as the many other weapons owned by the white supremacists, comes from the letter I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. It is from an unnamed black woman in Wilmington to President William McKinley. She writes that she leaves her her name off of the letter in case her or her, her family by extension would face retribution for writing out against the events that were happening in Wilmington. Not only does she specifically mention the presence of the Colt rapid fire guns in Wilmington, but she recalls their presence during the massacre and them being wheeled through the streets. Other reports of the event corroborate this account and emphasize that this gun was wheeled methodically and quickly through each section of the Brooklyn District. The men responsible for this were the Wilmington Light Infantry's Rapid Fire Gun Squad, many of which were well-known in town and wore parts of their old military uniforms during the massacre. The thought was that this not only gave them authority, but would soothe citizens by alerting them to the presence of the military and well-trusted men. In fact, many white community members praised them heavily for their efforts to restore peace, believing that the presence of this gun helped prevent further bloodshed. This was thought to be especially true as the M1895 was used to intimidate leaders of black churches to open their doors, which many white supremacists believed housed hidden weapons stores that the black citizens could use to retaliate against them. During these searches, which proved to be entirely fruitless, the M1895 was aimed at these churches so that if anyone tried to escape or attack the gun squads, they could be plowed down instantly. Which, an important thing to note is that the M1895s, especially the one manned by William Keenan, are not thought to have taken many victims, if any at all. In fact, I was only able to find a couple rumors that between three to four people may have died when the gun was discharged into a presumably empty house as some form of celebration or warning shots. This is because these guns were more so meant to intimidate through their presence alone than to contribute to the chaos. In fact, there is one incident where all of the men in the rapid fire gun squad except one leapt out of their cart in order to chase down an escaping black man on foot. The one man left behind was left with only the rapid fire gun and a pocket knife to defend himself, which It was quite the hefty gun, so he was never really in true danger, but I think this really shows how many more deaths could have occurred if this gun was utilized as a tool to kill instead of to intimidate, because had they chosen to, the men of the rapid fire gun squad could have easily gunned down this man and many others in less than a minute without leaving their cart and then continued on their way. And this is partly why they were praised so much. 
White citizens saw the M1895s as a method of crowd control that had restored order to their city and cheered as it was paraded through town on the day following the massacre. This parade also featured the Hotchkiss gun that had been used as well as five companies of troops, which, if you're not familiar with how big a company of soldiers is, they normally range from between 60 to 200 people. So this parade had somewhere between 300 and 1,000 soldiers marching through the streets along with the guns used during the massacre while white citizens cheered from the sidewalks. This was done not only to praise those who had taken part in the massacre and coup, but to show how successful and beneficial it was to white citizens. Which, I guess, nothing says unity and celebration more than a massive parade, so it definitely served its goal of wrapping up the massacre well. However, whether these men deserved this praise for acting as peacekeepers or crowd control is a much bigger issue for debate, especially as this event was primarily a one-sided form of violence. While there are a few scattered reports of some black men firing back upon the white, um, the white mobs, the angry crowds or large disruptive crowds of people were entirely white. And the few accounts of black men firing back against them, it is largely believed that they did not fire first, that they were merely returning fire or trying to defend themselves from the encroaching mobs. So to call these men peacekeepers seems a little odd especially as they were on the same side as the people causing the disruptions, the people who were enacting this violence. So it seems that the only reason these men of the Rapid Fire Gun Squad brought about any form of peace to the streets of Wilmington was because of the overwhelming sense of victory they gave to the white supremacists. Or should I say their fellow white supremacists? And this is because not only did these men all know each other, but those in the streets on foot were kind of egging each other on. This was a very emotional fueled or emotionally fueled act. But if you and your friend on foot are just armed with your own rifles and some of your friends come rolling through with this large, much more destructive gun, you kind of figure that your work is done here. That no matter what, your side has the upper hand and you can pretty much just go home. And that's kind of what happened. This was seen as such a solid mark of victory that after they were done, the massacre was kind of over. Yeah. 
So as we come to the end of our discussion of this weapon within the time frame of 1898, it's important to look at its lasting legacy. Where did this gun go? And what happened to the men who operated it? Well, at least as far as the gun is concerned, we don't really know. Since it belonged to the Wilmington Light Infantry, we know that that's where it returned to. But after that, its records mostly end, and that's kind of to be expected. Even though this was a huge piece of machinery that they spent a lot of money on, once it did its job, there was really no need to keep it out in public. There were some rumors of it being displayed at the recently renamed Longleaf Park at some point during the 1950s and 60s, but this seems to just be a local legend. It's proved very hard to pin down any reports to confirm this or any real records of it at all other than word of mouth. We do know that it remained at the Wilmington Light Infantry Building on display until 2003 after which it was moved into a private collection. But whose collection it was and whether or not it's still there remains a mystery. As well as how they were able to move it into their collection. Was it purchased? Did the Wilmington Light Infantry Building just want to get rid of it? We'll probably never know. However, tracking down the men who were part of the Rapid Fire Gun Squad is quite a bit easier. In fact, we can see some reminders of them on our campus here at UNCW, as well as throughout Wilmington and the rest of North Carolina. The captain of the gun squad was William Rand Keenan Sr., also known as Buck. A prominent businessman in Wilmington, Keenan's home in downtown Wilmington still stands today with a historic plaque letting you know who lived there. Keenan was a life insurance agent wholesale merchant, member of the Chamber of Commerce, and collector of the port under President Grover Cleveland. This means that not only was he of pretty high status within town, thanks to all the money he was making, but he knew a lot of people, and a lot of people knew him. Also, his appointment as collector of port shows us a lot about his political affiliation and position of against black leaders in Wilmington. Keenan replaced John C. Dancy, a prominent black official who had previously held the position until Grover took office. This shows his affiliation with the Democrat Party, which, especially in the South, carried the reputation of being the party of white supremacists. Before coming to Wilmington, Keenan served in the 43rd North Carolina Regiment, even gaining rank as captain. This gave him the military experience he would later use with the Wilmington Light Infantry, which he also became pretty well known for. Reports from the massacre refer to Keenan as a cool and competent leader and praise him in his role for directing the rapid-fire gun squad through town quickly and efficiently. However, it's his children who many of our large Keenan landmarks referred to. At UNCW, Keenan Auditorium, Keenan Hall, as well as the Keenan House, the official residence of the Chancellor, are all named in reference to Sarah Graham Keenan, which was 
Buck's daughter. Keenan's children also established the Keenan Professor Trust Fund at the University of North Carolina and funded their building of the Keenan Memorial Stadium in his and his wife's memory. However, in recent years, this stadium has been rededicated to honor his son, William Keenan Jr., an alumni of the university who was a well-known scientist and philanthropist. This brings us to the question of if this distance from Keenan Sr. is enough. Does the fact that his children benefited from his wealth, which we must acknowledge came in part from his discrimination and violence towards black Wilmingtonians, taint the contributions they made? I think this is something that UNCW really has to consider as we continue to promote the contributions Sarah Graham Keenan made to UNCW in part with this blood-stained money. While it's important to touch on who handles weapons like this one and how they can serve to intimidate themselves, I think it's good to address how these guns influence violence through their own material nature. Going back to our earlier description of this weapon, we can see that even without the men manning it, this thing seems to ooze violence. There's just something about the size of this weapon, as well as the smooth, heavy metal it's made from that seem to warn you about its capabilities before it's even been fired. And the same is to be said of the large amount of bullets that accompanied it, and therefore became a part of the gun. So, once this thing's been fired, there's a piece of this gun flying through the air. That means there is no disconnect between the gun and where it strikes. There is a clear piece of this weapon embedded in its target, be that flesh or landscape. The after effects of this for survivors can be truly haunting, especially for those who may now have to carry a physical piece of the violence with them. And for those that have to walk through the sites of violent violent gun crimes, such as Wilmington 1898, the presence of these embedded bullets in their buildings and homes, as well as the scattered shells from them being fired, can damage their sense of safety in these areas permanently, even if they're repaired and cleaned. I think that this is why gun, gun crimes especially can have such long-lasting effects on the public mind, as it's hard to erase something that can quite literally embed itself in the fabric of your being. As we reach the end of this episode of The Object Project, I'd like to give credit to the numerous sources that helped make this episode possible. All can be found in the transcript for this episode and offer even more information on this object as well as the events of Wilmington 1898 if you're interested in learning more. I 
also recommend looking into the other episodes of the season, as well as Loray Umfleet's Wilmington Race Riot Report, if you'd like to learn more about other aspects leading up to the massacre and coup, as well as the events following. I'd also like to give an extra thanks to some of the audio clips featured in this episode. Since, for those of us at home who don't own a variety of late 19th century weapons, getting to hear what they sound like is nearly impossible without the work of these collectors. So, a big thank you to Cap and Ball, Duelist 1954, and Straight Shooting Talk for sharing your pieces and letting us bring this history to life. A final thanks to those who lent their voices to this podcast, Rain Rhodes and Cameron Dedig, for bringing us those haunting passages and being a part of this project. I really hope you've enjoyed learning more about the Colt Browning M1895, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Object Project. Thank you, and good night.